Gracious God, our Father, thank you that we can come before you today and we can celebrate the fact that you have made us yours. Lord Jesus, you left the heights, you left all glory to come and live among us. And would you help us drawing on that, feeding on that, and being empowered by you? Would you let us be a piece of your grace, your humility, and your life in this world this week? It's not an easy thing to pray, but Lord, it is the will for you to do it. So take your word this morning and speak to us. Help us to that end, and uh, Father, meet with us in a special way. Be glorified here, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Andrew Murray was a Scottish missionary to South Africa and a minister for over 60 years. He wrote more than 200 books and tracts. After many years of ministry, he said that he was most distressed in his life at the lack of humility that he found among believers. When I look back on my own religious experience or in the church of Christ in the world, I stand amazed at the thought of how little humility is sought after as the distinguishing feature of the discipleship of Jesus. In preaching and living, in the daily activities of the home and social life, in the special fellowship among Christians, in the directing and doing of work for Christ, how much proof there is that humility is not esteemed the cardinal value. What a tragedy for him to say such words. Timothy Keller points out that making an idol out of our doctrinal accuracy or out of our ministry success or making an idol just out of our own morality, these things lead to constant internal conflict, to arrogance, to self-righteousness and self-dependence, and ultimately even to the oppression of those who have views who differ. We are in dire need of holy humility in every phase of our lives. And nowhere more so than in our gathered spiritual life, whether that is together congregationally or whether that is individually when we come together. The Lord cannot bless our arrogance, but He loves to give grace to the humble. So, how do we grow? How do we grow in such grace? Unless you happen to be that unique individual for whom humility comes naturally, you never have to think of it, and it just flows out of you. If I was like that, I would tell everybody about it. Have I told you how humble I am lately? Right? If you're not, though, how do we grow in such grace? How is it that we can be trained in such humility? Well, the good news is if you have come to Christ, then this morning you have come to the right place. Because in the Lord Jesus, we have not only the perfect example, we have, in fact, a supernatural resource, if we know Him, who is able and willing and desirous to transform us in just this way. Paul, in Philippians, writing to these Christians back in Philippi, has told them in chapter 1, verse 27, to stand firm in one spirit. He has told them to be unified, In the face of threats, verse 28. In the face of attacks, verse 29. In the face of coming sufferings, verse 30. And then he starts chapter 2. He hasn't left his topic of unity and its desperate need. But he now begins to show them that the means by which they can grow in such unity 
is by having humility. And he points them to Christ because having Christ is their only hope in having true humility. Read with me this morning. I'm going to take the whole passage, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. I want you to know I had wrestled this week. My hope was to do all 11 verses. I found out quickly that was impossible, so I had planned to do eight verses. Decided late in the week that was going to definitely be impossible. So we'll do, Lord willing, four verses this week and then revisit it later. Philippians 2, though, I want you to see the whole chunk as it hangs together in a unit, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a passage that is likely common for some of you. I, for most of my Christian life, have had a healthy love-hate relationship with the opening verses of Philippians chapter 2, thinking often of it as that passage which speaks of the glories of Christ, but also calls me to that which I find terribly impossible and so often unlikable to even want to do, humility. And yet, within the passage itself, if we let the Spirit of God speak, that which He has perfectly orchestrated and, and perfectly laid out for us, we find a richness in a renewed understanding of what humility is, how it works, and the glories of what God does through in it, through it. So first, this morning, first the Lord commands us in this word, be filled for humble unity. These opening four verses, be filled for humble unity. I had wanted this to be the first point. It's going to be our only point for this morning because there are five truths related to this one point that Paul gives us in this passage that we must see. What we're going to see is that humility is not so much something that we can grasp by by charging directly at it. Sort of like the uh, old adage about trying to catch a butterfly. Typically don't get it by running for it. But if you sit still long enough, you may just come and alight on your hand. We're going to see the humility is so much a byproduct of the divine work that God does in us. We have an opportunity and a responsibility to pursue some things, and as we pursue Him, He does a work in us which produces these glorious fruits. Five truths, then, we need to see that if we will linger on them, they will transform us. If we linger on them, they will foster that divine work of humility in us. First truth. You have all you need in knowing God. Be filled for humble unity is what 
The Spirit calls you and me to today. And then Paul tells us first off, where we're going to begin is that you have all you need in knowing God. Humility is not even something that sounds terribly attractive. It is most certainly not something I'm good at. It's definitely not what the world tells me I need in order to get ahead, and I'm not even really sure that I want it. But Paul's starting point is in the pursuit of it, believer, if you know Christ, you already have all you need, and all that you need is found in knowing God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion. What Paul is saying as he leads out is that because you have the affection and comfort of Christ, brothers and sisters, because you have this, you have all you need to be able to walk in unity, to be filled up for humility. Paul is making the argument here then that it is preposterous for us to possess the life of Christ and not to bear some fruit thereby. Specifically, preposterous for us to have all of these benefits, these riches of a child of God through the Godhead and not bear some measure of humility. That's what Paul is saying here. Did you notice the ifs there? If there is any encouragement, if any consolation, if any fellowship, if any affection, right? What we have here is not really so much a question as it is a rhetorical question. Jesus does this often. He will ask those with whom he debates or speaks a question that he's really not expecting them to try and answer because he knows they know what the answer is. He is making a point by the asking of the questions. Exactly what Paul is doing here. He's saying, you Philippians whom I love, if you know any of these riches from the knowledge of Christ. And he wants us to pause and consider, do I? He knows we do. His expectation is that every believer to some degree has experienced every one of these things. So really, if you'd like, we could translate this, and in fact, the same construction is translated elsewhere in the Greek New Testament with the word word since. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, okay? That's the force of what's there. But now understand the reason that Paul has chosen these words. Because by using if rather than since, what is he doing? He's calling us into consideration. Hey, since you know this and you know this and yeah, yeah, blah, 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 I'm nodding my head. Just get to what I'm supposed to do with it, Paul. No, Paul says, hey, I have a question. Have you ever felt the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ? We pause, we think about it, we go, you know, I have. He says, then guess what? Right there is everything you need because found therein is the power and the work of God to do that which is of yourself impossible. By, by the use of the if, the force of this is to call these recipients in Philippi to slow down, to meditate, to ruminate on these five things that he's going to give. Paul expects them to be benefits that every believer knows. And so let's just list these five terms that describe the blessings of the Christian life. If there is any encouragement, if there is any consolation, if there is any fellowship, if there is any affection, and if there is any compassion. So, I was a good student. 
I went and I looked up all the Greek for every one of these, checked out all of my tools, wanted to wrestle with, okay, Paul is making five points here through these five things that we are to experience from God through Christ. So I want to see what are the differences of each one of them. And guess what I found? There are not five different things. There's really essentially one multifaceted, powerful benefit of the experiential knowledge of Christ. Does that sound familiar, by the way, those of you who have been with us in the book of Philippians, that he talks about the experiential knowledge of God? Well, this is what Paul banks on as he calls them to do the impossible, as he calls them to humble themselves so that they can grow in unity so these five different terms are really just one single rich, overlapping, personal experience, a description of the personal experience of God's love and His affections, of His emotion and His nearness of partnership with Him. And so He is inviting these readers, and the Spirit invites us today to consider each of them in turn. Has Christ ever comforted you? Christian, if you know Christ, then I can say I know He has at some point in your life. Yes, in lonely hours, He was my only comfort. I remember my first semester in Raleigh, and I went out there. I knew not a single person in the entire state of North Carolina. Actually, that's not entirely true. I had, there was one gentleman there who I had talked to on the phone a couple of times. He's the only guy I knew in the whole state. And I went out there, and I had been through a difficult time and had some big changes in my life. And it was far and away the most lonely and the most glorious, rich season of my life that I have ever known in my walk with the Lord Jesus. Because Christ comforted me sometimes so consistently, so daily, that I would walk about on campus and I couldn't wait to get back home to be alone in my room with the Lord Jesus Christ, who was my dearest friend. Because I knew he knew me. Has Christ ever comforted you? Has the Spirit ever been your dearest friend? Has there ever been times where you have cried out asking for his power, wrestling, struggling over a conflict or a situation or a decision, asking him to do the miraculous work, whether of guidance or whether of fruit bearing in your own life? To, to somehow minister to you so that you could be different in the midst of the situation because a hundred times out of the last hundred, I've wrecked this. And then the next day it happens and you're not ready for it, but the Lord answers. And suddenly you stop and you look back and you go, He did it. Holy Spirit, where did that come from? Because that wasn't me. That was so you. You know me like no one knows me. You hear me, you are working in me in a way that I find miraculous and amazing. And you stand in wonder of his good work down in the depths of your soul to create affections you never knew or never even had before. Has the love of God ever been your consolation? Yes, it has. Have you known his affections and his compassions? Have you ever had the sense, I know now in the midst of this, the Lord knows me and keeps me? You have. Paul knows it and expects it as he writes to these believers. If indeed these things are true of you, then you have all you need. 
there in the knowledge of the Godhead. I think the Trinity is easy enough to see. Christ himself and the Spirit are both mentioned. I think the love is not specifically named as being the love of God or the love of the Father, but I think in context that's absolutely absolutely what we have here. And so this is the experience. This is the benefit of every Christian having been brought into the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit and having experienced it for themselves. So then Paul, after using these five overlapping terms to express the believer's benefits in verse 1, the benefits of being united to the Godhead, Paul now uses four overlapping terms to clearly communicate God's command for us. Brother, have you known these things? Then here is what must be true of you. In some measure, unity with humility. Look at verse 2, four terms. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Same mind, same love, united spirit, one thought. That's the literal Greek word that's translated in the NAS, intent on one purpose. It's one thought. Can you doubt what Paul's objective is for these Philippians at this point? No, it is profound unity. Just as he introduced back in 127, that you would would, um, strive together in one spirit, that you would stand firm in one spirit, he said in 27. And now he's returning to it and he's saying, now here's how it's going to happen. Out of all these resources, God can produce in you. Same mind, same love, united spirit, one thought. We can't doubt the Spirit's desire for us. We can't doubt the intention of what God wants for His people. Paul's argument here is you cannot now know God and at the same time be unmoved towards your brother or sister. You cannot have experiential knowledge of God and demonstrate an utter lack of care for your brothers and sisters in Christ and for God's people, individually, personally, specifically. It's a tall order, isn't it? And yet it's exactly what the Spirit has designed to do by His presence in our life, and it's exactly what the present presence of the Lord Jesus does in us. So let us do the hard work of moving towards brothers and sisters, the hard work of listening well when they express need. For the sake of humble unity, let's, let's, when we find conflict within our own soul, pause and pray over that and say, Lord, what am I doing here that's causing me to push someone away? Or if we're noticing conflict amongst ourselves and somebody else, going back and seeking the Lord, what is happening here that maybe I need to address? Let us believe the best of others rather than assuming the worst. Let's be quick to be free to admit, yeah, I... I have an opinion, and I think this is right, but I'll be the first to tell you I have much to learn. The truth we have, as the Spirit has laid it out for us, then I could summarize this way. If you know Christ, then there should be in you His care for others. If you have tasted of the love of God, then there must be in you His sympathy for your brothers and sisters. Since you have shared in the closeness of the Spirit, then let there be an unbreakable common bond among you. Since you have felt the Lord's deep compassions, then be moved by the same kinds of mercies towards one another. 
Paul grounds these solemn commands in the bedrock of the gospel. He plants these seeds for obedience in the rich and fertile soil of experienced grace. Have you experienced the grace of God's presence? Then you have all you need to do the impossible by His power. Be filled for humble unity. You have all you need in knowing God. Let me just pause here and and make clear then one of the takeaways from our passage this morning. Any point in your life, Christian, that you find that you're struggling with pride, you're like, well, that was pretty arrogant, and I'm really, really good at it lately. You find that there is discord in your relationships, disunity, and you have a sneaking suspicion that the problem is in good part you. Then you are not without hope. Anytime you find that you feel that you are sorely lacking in humility, then come back and meditate on these five experiences that you have had, that you know because Christ and the Spirit and the Father Himself are at work in you. And come back and relish those again. Slow down and pause and say, have I known this? Yeah, Lord, I remember. And as you draw nearer to Him, Let the divine work that bears fruit to humility begin its process. Soak in these five experiences of knowing Him. Be filled for humble unity. Next, Paul gives the second truth that we need to see, and that is this. Humility makes unity contagious. Humility makes unity contagious. I love that thought, as Scripture has it here for us. See it with me here in the middle of verse 3. After commending them, commanding them towards unity by four phrases in verse 2, in the middle of verse 3, he's going to begin to tell them how to do it. And he's going to say, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. He is targeting the mind. We're going to come back to that in a second. He's telling them to consider, to regard, to make a conscious choice to fight the battle of your thinking. But understand this, what undergirds the right kind of thinking that leads to humility is one thing. In humility, consider yourself. In humility, regard others. You see, unity needs humility in order to work. We know that pride and unity are opposites, aren't they? Proverbs 13.10 says, Through insolence comes nothing but strife. You, uh, I don't know, you you may work in a place where you might feel a profound sense of unity with your coworkers. And you might say, and you know what, man, I work with some really brilliant, honestly, really arrogant people But man, we're a team. Question then, how deep do you think that kind of unity really is? Oh, it's cool to be working arm in arm in partnership with somebody who's who's brilliant and can see a million miles down the road and always knows the right thing to do and it pulls you together. We're fighting for the same cause. But how deep is that unity? If they really are arrogant, you'll find out pretty quickly the first time that you do something that offends them. And maybe working on the same team isn't all as unified as it was cracked up to be, right? You could pick whatever scenario you might think of. There might be an appearance of unity, but if there is arrogance within that unity, it will be very shallow 
indeed. But humility and peaceful unity, oh, those are kissing cousins. Those go hand in hand together. I would contend that everywhere that you find any kind of depth of unity, poke around just a little bit and you'll find humility because the humility is there to breed it. It's the soil that draws people together rather than pushes them apart. Unity thrives where humility dwells. Humility nourishes unity. Humility is is attractive. It draws people together. We want to be with people who are humble people. We want to be like people who are humble people. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of spending an evening with somebody or having a lunch with somebody and you walk away and you go, man, that dude just has the sweetest spirit about him. And I totally want to be more like that. He is gracious and giving in his words. He is thoughtful. He draws people out. Man, I totally want to be like that. And that sentiment lasts for a few minutes. And then I go about my way again and decide that my pride is a lot easier. But we're drawn to humble people. We want to be allied with humble people who make room, who improve and better and call out and draw out others. Humility makes unity contagious. If you lead a team and you find that it is difficult to see unity amongst the members of the team, pause and consider, where is their pride? Cause and consider, where am I fostering humility? Cause and consider, where could I model humility? Because it will make unity contagious. I want to pause and make a disclaimer here about humility. Paul doesn't do it here in this passage in Philippians, but we know elsewhere from Scripture. Because we, given that the idea of humility gets such a bad rap in our world, can often place it in a category that we think of so negatively that it is not God's perspective. We're going to be convinced of that by the end of the day today. But let me just name some of the things that I think we can be tempted to think of as what humility looks like, but it's not. First, humility is not insecurity. Humility is profoundly secure, so much so that it has no need to have the spotlight, to steal life, to be first. So secure, in fact, that it gives life and is not even brought into contention when another is exalted, right? Humility is profoundly secure. It's not insecurity. Humility is not ineptness. The inept person might say, oh man, I'm terrible. I can't do this. I'm no good at this. I'm, I'm just such a loser. And you might say, yeah, I've, I've seen humility before and it looks ugly. Question, does that description that I just gave sound to you like humility? Answer, no. You want to know why? Because that person is talking all about themselves. That's not humility. Someone has said that humility is not so much thinking less of ourselves as it is that humility is just thinking less of ourselves. The inept person may feign humility while they are the center of their universe. Humility is not a constant discouragement. Oh, dude, you're so great because I'm just a loser and I can't get it together. Again, it's a self-focus. Humility is not a call to a constant misery, rather it is a call to life and joy. It is a call to glory. 
but it's one that only God gives, not one we could ever achieve on our own. And that kind of humility is contagious. And when you have a friend, when you find somebody whom you see that in their life, you go, holy cow, I totally want to be like that. Third truth, to be filled for humble unity. Humility starts by winning the battle for the mind. That's where Paul begins, and that's where we need to begin if we understand that we consciously have to do some work to fight. Humility starts by winning the battle for the mind, so win the battle for your thinking. I want you to look again, uh, starting in verse 2, and just notice the number of times that Paul mentions mind or thought-related language. Make my joy complete, verse 2, by being of the same mind. And then at the end of verse 2, intent on one purpose. And as I mentioned, the literal Greek word there is having the same thoughts. Down in verse 3, we get it again, do, do all things with humility of mind. And then it says regarding. The word for regarding is to consider, to cogitate, to chew on, to actively, consciously put your mental energies towards it. And then again, we have a repetition in verse 5 where it says, have this attitude in yourselves. Again, it's the same Greek word for thought that was back there in verse 2. Have this thought. And then in verse 6, we have what is a key word, another regarding. Jesus did not regard. He did not think. He chewed on and ended up deciding that equality with God was not something he was going to cling to. And it's a key word there, the regarding. We are to think about it and fight the battle in our minds and in so doing regard our position and regard others. That battle's got to be fought. And as we do that, the Lord can begin His divine work which creates in us a fruit that's beautiful. And one of the encouragements off that key word regard is that Jesus, our example, did a similar thing. He who was in the highest position of all eternity, one with God. He did some thinking and considering and decided, I think I won't exploit it. I don't think I'll use this position to my advantage. I think I'll use my opportunity to the advantage of all of mankind. That's what he did in his regarding. So we are to do the same. Lord willing, we'll get to that when we come to the next part of this passage in Philippians another day. What I want you to see is that there's a battle there for our minds. And so when, when we think like the world, we will get turmoil, guaranteed. When we think after the flesh, we will get contention. It's only a matter of time. We might be big and strong enough to win for a bit, so we squash all rivalry but if we're acting out of the flesh, there won't be peace and there won't be unity. Humility starts by winning the battle for the mind. Now, Paul's going to give us two descriptions to help us win this battle for our thinking. When it comes to humility, Lord, then where do I start so that I can be transformed? Well, he's going to, he's going to give us two descriptions that are going to help us. First will be a description of what humility isn't and then a description of what humility is. This is all under my third heading about winning the battle for the mind, okay? So what humility isn't? Look at the beginning of verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness 
or empty conceit. And the beginning of verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. What humility isn't? First, it isn't selfishness. If you're taking notes, what you need to write down at this point is I want to give you another word for selfishness that I think captures it best. The Greek word here has the idea of contention or strife. I like the word rivalry, but it's not a common English term, so I understand why the translators didn't use it. But, but it works well if you have to chew on this. Do nothing from rivalry, Paul tells us. Rivalry is that spirit of one-upsmanship, of constantly wanting to be the superior, of needing to be first, of wanting to be known as the best or just to be the one who is mostly in the spotlight and recognized most of the time. That's rivalry. Paul says, pause and think about your last conflict. Good, I'll give you some time to remember what it was. Okay, good, you got it? That didn't take long. Think of your last conflict. Probably... Probably in the midst of that, you, you didn't want to prove that you were right, did you? Probably in the midst of that, you weren't seeking to convince anyone of your innocence or of the preference of your understanding or of your virtue. Probably not, right? No, you were probably honestly and earnestly just seeking for the best of all and willing to understand regardless of where the chips fell, Right? If you are that unique person, then praise God for the work of the Spirit of God in you. But if you're like me and most of the rest of us, then there may be at times a spirit of rivalry that's there. And it's something that's good to be able to bring consciously back to the Lord and say, Lord, okay, what am I after? And is it even worth it? How am I going about it? And is that even going to achieve it? What is your goal in the midst of it? And is that what I really want? Or do I really want what I think? I want. If you serve yourself through rivalry, then eventually you will get blame and finger pointing and bitterness and disappointment. Eventually, that is sure to follow. It's just a matter of time if you and I serve ourselves in rivalry. rivalry. But give yourself to the good of others. Do the hard work of seeking to benefit another. And you know what you'll find? The delightful surprise that the Spirit of God is actually creating in you a desire to rejoice when another is spoken well of, to share in the glories of God doing a bigger work, and now you become a part of it in another person's life. Humility isn't rivalry or selfishness. It isn't empty conceit. That's the second phrase that's given there in the opening of verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I have to tell you that this week, this Greek word is now my new favorite word in the whole world. Kenodoxia. The word doxa means glory. It is a rich, rich word in Scripture. The glory of God, the name of God, right? The magnificence of God. That is glory. What is kenodoxa or kenodoxia? Well, the word kena means empty. Empty glory. There is a whole sermon just right there in Paul 
telling these believers, when we seek out of rivalry to accomplish our own will, good, you can have it. And with it, a whole banquet of empty glory. Hope you enjoyed it. Humility doesn't seek what is an empty glory. Empty glory is craving credit or notice or applause. What does Paul say about the Pharisees? He says they desire to to be noticed by men when they do their, their good acts that are supposed to be glorifying to God. And he says, I tell you the truth, I hope they enjoy it because they've already received their reward in full. Why? Because everybody noticed him. Oh, look at that that finely dressed Pharisee, and notice how much money he's putting. Listen to his long prayers. Oh, he looks really miserable and gaunt and thin and depressed. Oh, he's fasting. He's holy. Jesus says, I hope they enjoyed it because that's all their reward. Empty glory. Instead, we could seek for what is true glory, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. What a sad thing to succeed at the pursuit of that which is worthless. And the Lord saying, you're free to have at it in your stubbornness if that's what you choose. See, this is why I need Philippians 2. This is why you need to come back and be reminded, Lord, wow, look at what I'm doing naturally. Nobody taught me rivalry and arrogance. I never went to a class for that. I'm just good at it naturally. And the Lord says, what I desire for you is so much better. And we think, yeah, create in me that desire, Lord. Grant me to be one who is lavishment, lavish in the, in the lifting up of others and the encouragement of them. One who, who is okay when others take the spotlight, who seek a glory that is unto God, not to our own name, who are willing to accept it, if rightly praised, to say what a gift at the end of the day, and he still gets all the glory. When one works only to be noticed, the result will be rivalry and empty glory. Lastly, notice in verse 4, there is the regarding again. It's a regarding others. um, And uh, pardon me, me, verse 4, the other thing not to do, what humility is not, is merely looking out for our own interests. And so... I'll wrap that in with the other two. Moving on, what humility is in verses 3 and 4. Middle of 3, with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. And middle of 4, looking out also to the interests of others. That's what humility looks like, considering others as more important and also considering others' interests, their value, their importance, and their interests. Is that pretty practical? Yeah, that's something I can pray about. That's something I can work on. That's something I can target. How do we consider others in their intrinsic value and their importance? Well, praying before God about them. It is a powerful thing to endear the value of somebody to yourself. Had a a discipler who 30 years ago said those words, and I've honestly never forgot them. On some occasion, they've been a life changer. To endear others in your own thinking through prayer. Lord, what's great about her? What are the gifts you've given him? What's, What's unique and special about that 
person, endearing that person in your own mind to your own understanding. That's how you give them value. I wonder if we were to, as parents, truly to consider others as more important, if we would ever scream at our kids. Is there ever a time where I could shout at my children in anger and have that be commensurate with considering their God-given value? It's worth considering, isn't it? And every mom in the room goes, thanks, I'm not going to sleep all week. (laughs) And the dads as well. But praise be to God for the clear statement that would bring me up short and saying, okay, I'm pretty hacked off and it's about to come out, but you know what, Lord? Look at the value of this child. And I want this one to know she is valued in my eyes and it is worth it for me to swallow hard and figure out how we're going to do this in a way that glorifies you because look at the value, look at the importance of this little one in your eyes or with a spouse or with a dear friend who's maybe wronged you, or you have a misunderstanding, or fill in the blank, right? Give value by your words, by your attention, by your actions. Husbands, when you arrive home first thing after a long day, could it be said of you that at some point from walking in the door to going to bed that night that you have given value to the people in your home? It's a good thing to think about. Reverse the roles if you want. Apply it wherever you want. But it's there, right there, low-hanging fruit. It is to have the Spirit's power to be able to eagerly honor another person. You know what? This is my favorite game in all of the Bible. You want to know what my favorite game is? Romans 12.10, which commands us to outdo one another in showing honor. We should play that game all the time. Okay, let's all get together this afternoon and let's see who can win at giving honor to other people the best. Is that a cool game or what? That's what Romans 12.10 says. You know what the spirit-filled mind does with a heart controlled by Christ's humility? It just gives honor. It just gives importance. It breathes value all over people. And it just does it by the divine work that God has built in. That's what humility looks like, and it also looks like considering others' interests. Lord, this is what I'm after in this, but I'm having a problem here. I think what I'm after is right, but let me just set that aside and consider what is he after? What is she after? Just consider that. Lord, you're big enough to figure us out. You're big enough to help this land in the right place. Just pause and consider. The Holy Spirit is powerful to create in us an empathy a sympathy, and even a desire to want to meet others' needs before our own. And when that happens in your life, you know what you do? You have the fellowship of the Spirit, and you go, wow, look at what you did. Look at what you just created in me right there. That's not from me. That's from you. Humility is not insecure. Humility is a powerful thing that puts others' interests first. And it can be beautiful and life-giving for both parties. See, it's the grace of God that changes us, and the result is a newfound affection to want to bless others. When that is operating even marginally well in a marriage, that marriage is life-changing, isn't it? 
When that's operating even marginally well in an accountability relationship with two women who are tight with each other and they can share anything and they can build each other up and they pray over each other, those two women are powerful against the gates of hell, right? Or two men or whatever in a small group or in a church. That's what humility unleashes. Paul says we've got to win the battle for our thinking first. And so he just gives a couple of glimpses about what humility is and what it isn't. R.C. Chapman ministered in England. Uh, He lived from 1803 to 1902. You do the math and you'll figure out that's a long time. A contemporary of Chapman's, who himself was also a pastor, described Chapman in a letter to his friend. And I think it's a sweet picture of what a little bit of this power looks like and the impact it can have on people. Harrington Evans wrote this letter to his friend and he said, Chapman has just left us. He stayed here last night after preaching for us at John Street Chapel. Oh, what a man of God he is. What grace he exhibits. Courage and meekness. Self-denial and tenderness perseverance and a love for souls. All of these spring out of a love for Christ and a love for God and they seem to be beauteously blended together in beautiful symmetry. That was a man who didn't know that his words would ever would be heard, who had never intended to compliment somebody in his hearing, but his honest assessment. What a beautiful picture. R.C. Chapman at one season of his life uh, ran what was sort of like a retreat center Uh, He had a home with some extra rooms, and so he would welcome missionaries. He would welcome weary servants and ministers or just other people who were going through a peculiar challenge and let them stay with him, and he would minister to them while they were there. One of the things that he was often wont to do is before his guests turn in for the night, he would say, hey, last thing before you go to bed, would you make sure to set your boots outside your door? They would ask him why, and he wouldn't lie. They'd say, because I'm going to clean them. But, but it's already 10 o'clock at night, sir. We're going to be up very early. Just put your boots outside your door. One particular brother uh, fought with him. He said, no way. There is no way I'm going to let you clean my boots. He says, I'm sorry, but you can't not let me because Jesus commands me to wash your feet. And so in the way it works in our world today, this is the best opportunity I have. Just leave your boots outside your door for me. When we win the battle for the mind, then humility becomes a powerful resource in our lives that is amazingly used of God to impact people, isn't it? Well, let's close with two other truths quickly then, and we'll be done at least with this portion of our passage, be done for today. Fourth truth, Paul argues here for us that humility pleases God. Humility pleases God. Here's how I want you to notice this. Uh, Look at the beginning of verse 2. What does Paul say? Make my joy complete. After drawing them in and saying, look, have you ever felt Christ's love for you? Have you ever known the Spirit's nearness? Do you know any of these things? And then he gives the only command in our whole passage today. Four verses, there's only one command. You know what Paul's command is? Make me happy. He is so selfish, right? Consider the scenario of Paul's selflessness. Paul's in prison. 
Paul is being betrayed by the Christians in his own region who are actively preaching the gospel because they know and intend that it will make Paul's being imprisoned for preaching the gospel even more odious in the, in the smell of the leaders of the day so they'll come down even harder on him. He's being betrayed by other Christian leaders where he is. He doesn't know if he'll live. And so what he does is he writes to his brothers and sisters in Philippi, and he says, hey, I want you to make me happy. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get an army. I want you to march on the city. I want you to kill all the bad guys, and I want you to liberate the prisoners, me first, right? That's what he says, right? No. He says, I want you to know what will make me deliriously happy in the midst of my situation is if you are so unified by virtue of your humility that breathes out the humility of Christ. He said, there's nothing else that could happen that would make me happier. They can kill me in this cell, and I really don't care. If you stand firm in one spirit, the beauty of that humility will foster the aroma of the gospel will go forward, and I can die because that's all I really want. One command, everything else in these four verses flows from it. Make my joy complete. You know what Paul is modeling for us? Not just the heart of an apostle, not just the heart of a pastor or a shepherd. It's the heart of God. If that is how imperfect, selfish, pathetic human Paul feels, how do you think the Lord feels when he sees your humility? Humility pleases God maybe more quickly than anything else. Maybe he is more powerfully disposed to move towards us in our willing humility than he is at any other time or in anything else we do. Humility pleases God. I also think that probably um, it would make others around me pretty happy too if I were to exhibit humility. But what we need in the change of our thinking in the battle of our mind is to understand I can delight my Lord in heaven in this. That's the power of humility. Fifth thing and finally, humility is genuine glory. Humility is genuine glory. I've already alluded to this. We get fake glory. We get empty glory in verse 3 because I can do that all by myself all day long. But because we're putting the two pieces together, I just need to jump ahead so we don't miss it later. But in verse 5, we're going to be told something about the Lord Jesus. We already know he, he did some regarding, some considering, some chewing, right? And he decided, as it pertains to my being equal with God, I will not exploit that. Verse, seven is he, verse 6 is he says, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or clutched to himself. And so he did what? Verse 8. But he emptied himself. You know what the Greek word is behind verse 8? Kenosis. Empty. So here's what we have in verse 3. We are exhorted. Why pursue empty glory? And then we're told to think like and have the presence of Christ within us to cause us to think like him. And what did he do? Did he have glory? Oh, yeah. He had it. And what did he do? He kenosised. Same as the word that is there for kenodoxia. Not empty glory, 
but genuine glory in his emptying of himself. Proof? Look at how the passage ends in verse 11, which we'll get to see in earnest another day. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what is the purpose for which Christ was humbled and then exalted? What is the end game of that final exaltation and was always in mind when Christ came to humble himself? What is the purpose of all of it? What does your passage say? To the glory of God the Father. The humility of Christ not only pleased the Father, the humility of Christ glorified the Father. And if you choose to walk in humility, having your mind refit, it not only pleases God, it glorifies God. And the Lord says, hey, Gabriel, look at my son. Look at him. Look at his humility of mind and heart. Look at his spirit for others. Look at his willingness to not stand in the spotlight. Look at his willing to stoop like my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and do the hard work. Gabriel, it's beautiful. And it's all to my glory. Look at what I've done in him. And all the angels will say, great are you, O Lord, our God. That is genuine glory. This is the glory of humble unity. I hope you'll be okay that we didn't get to finish the passage today and we'll circle back to it a second time. If you already feel like you've got this knocked and you don't need to learn any more on this, then you don't have to come back. But I don't know about you, but it's probably for me a really good thing that I'm going to get to think deeply about this for more than just one week. Friends, when it comes to humility, understand this is the power that is yours because you've experienced Christ. This is the power to unify your marriage, your children, your family, your church, your small group. This is a power that is contagious and people want it and they will be attracted to it if you and I can in some measure walk in it. This is a power to please God and it is full of glory. This is the glue that helps the people of God stand firm in one spirit in the face of threats, in the face of attacks, in the face of suffering. Alexander Strauch, in his book, If You Bite and Devour One Another. By the way, why don't we have more books with cool titles like that? If You Bite and Devour One Another. Strauch is just taking a phrase from the book of Galatians. He's talking about interpersonal conflict. In that book, Alexander Strzok, in passing, mentions a data point from later in the life of the church in Philippi. The early church father, Polycarp, about 50 years after Paul writes his letter to the Christians in Philippi, 50 years later, Polycarp writes a letter to the Christians in Philippi, about 115 A.D. Reading that letter, reading between the lines, what we find in Polycarp's writing is a group of Christians in Philippi who are alive and united. wonder how that happened. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Oh, gracious God, our Father, thank you. 
that you know the inner workings of our conscience and our spirit and our soul in ways that we don't even fully understand. What a great gift humility is. Help us understand rightly that the spirit of Christ in humility is our ally and that pride is so much our enemy. Lord, grant us the grace this week in some measure to grow in this. Lord Jesus, you have comforted us deeply. Holy Spirit, you have drawn us incredibly close. Father, you have showered your love upon us and we've known your affection. So now out of that power and that grace, would you bear fruit in us wherever you lead us this week? It's scary to pray, Lord, but would you help us grow in humility? This what we ask all for your glory, and so very much for our good. In Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen.